What a joy it is to celebrate a baptism. Amen. So, good morning. My name is Jason, one of the pastors here at Community Church, and uh, invite you to pray with me as we enter into the Word. Father, oh, how good it is to celebrate, to celebrate your work in, in life. And Father, our hearts are full as we uh, see this picture of your rescue, a picture of a young man discipling a young man. And that inspires us, that encourages us. We thank you for questions. We thank you for answers. We thank you for the opportunity to see and share the hope of Jesus together. And Father, now as we enter into your word, as we think about what it looks like to finish strong, what it looks like to persevere in our faith, what it looks like to not quit. We're thankful that we have you. And Father, I ask now that you would open up our hearts, our minds. I pray that my words are clear, that they're helpful, that they bring you glory and honor, burn off whatever doesn't do those things. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to finish up our series in the book of Judges. And we've been looking at this this idea of faith in darkness. Faith in darkness. What does it look like to have faith in darkness? And the book of Judges closes with this verse. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and in many ways, that's a description of the time 3,000 years ago when everybody kind of did their own thing, everybody did what they thought was right, believed what they thought was right, and that has nothing to do with our day and time today. <laughs> it could have been written today, right? So in many ways, that's the darkness, that's the challenge, that's the battle, and then how do we walk in that? How do we walk by faith in a world, in a culture like this? That's our challenge. Last week, we looked at part one in the story of Gideon, and we saw Gideon's rise we saw Gideon, he, he started off and he was this timid man. He was threshing wheat in a wine press. He was, he was hiding from the Midianites, hiding from the opposition. God calls him, God uses him in a mighty way to defeat the enemy. And the key for Gideon, the key to his rise, we said last week, is to name his weakness, which opens the door for God's strength. Sometimes I wish we could have just ended the story last week. Now there's a fall that we're going to see in the life of Gideon. And a fall that I believe can be a cautionary tale for us today. Because I believe this, having taught a lot, coached a lot, pastored for a minute, it's hard to finish strong. It is hard to finish strong. 
strong, whether it's finishing an assignment, whether it's finishing a particular season, or whether it's finishing your days on this earth. Finishing strong is a challenge. The good news is we've got good news that will help us finish. So we're going to look at this cautionary tale, part two of Gideon, and then we're going to turn to the book of Hebrews, who's going to answer the question, how do we finish strong? I challenged us at the beginning of the series, what's the next hard right thing for you to do? I hope that many of you have taken up that challenge and you're working through that because when we we take those steps, that's when we can invite God to work in us and change us. But the question today is, how do you finish strong? And whatever that is, how do you finish strong? So I invite you to open up your Bible, turn it on, look up on the screen, and I want to take you to Judges chapter 8, verse 1. We've got a lot of ites, we've got a lot of names here. I'll do my best to explain a little bit, but then we'll get to, get to the application here. Now the Ephraimites asked Gideon, why have you treated us like this? Why didn't you call us when you went to fight Midian? And they challenged him vigorously. Now let me back you up if you weren't with us last week. There's a battle. Gideon is called to defeat the Midianites, but God will first thin his army out to make sure that it's the Lord that gets the credit. So if you're a member or you're new to this, Gideon goes into battle with 300 men. And they don't come with swords, they come with trumpets and jars of clay and they create this confusion and then the Midianites turn on one another and then they flee. So we see this rise of Gideon, and that's where we are. Now we're pursuing the enemy. And the Ephraimites, who are Israelites, are saying, hey, you're getting all the glory. Why didn't you call us? Why didn't you call us? Why didn't you ask us to fight? It's a good question. But he answered them. Verse 2, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't the gleanings of Ephraim's grapes better than the full grape harvest of Ebiezer? God gave Oreb and Zeeb, the Midianite leaders, into your hands. What was I able to do compared to you? At this, their resentment against him subsided. What we see here in Gideon is brilliant diplomacy. 3,000 years ago, great diplomacy. Look, you Ephraimites, you're the strongest. You're the strongest clan. I'm just the weakest. You know, your leftovers are better than my full harvest. All right, there's some cultural differences here, but I want you to see that what Gideon is doing here is diplomacy. He's trying to avoid more and more conflict. It seems like we're off to a good start. 
for Gideon. But let's continue. Verse 4, Gideon and his 300 men, exhausted, yet keeping up the pursuit, came to the Jordan and crossed it. He said to the men of Sukkoth, give my troops some bread. They are worn out, and I am still pursuing Zeba and Zalmanah, the kings of Midian. Fellow Israelites, once again, we're tired. Give us some bread. Seems like a reasonable request. But the officials of Sukkoth said, do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah in your possession? Why should we give bread to your troops? In other words, hey, if you don't have the kings in your hands right now, you may lose, and they may come back someday and say, who aided and abetted them? And they'll come after us. That's what's going on here. Again, we've talked about in the book of Judges the the reality of the opposition that you can see versus the power of God that you cannot yet see. We see this tension right there. So let's see how Gideon's diplomacy works here. Verse 7, then Gideon replied, just for that, when the Lord has given Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand, I will tear your flesh with desert thorns and briars. This is not a metaphorical trash talk here. This is like real. From there, verse 8, he went up to Paniel and made the same request of them. Again, fellow Israelites, but they answered as the men of Sukkoth said, had. So he said to the men of Paniel, when I return in triumph, I will tear down this tire, tower. I picture Gideon. I picture his big words. I mean, this is, this is the same one who was so timid before that he had to ask of the Lord like four times to prove that this was going to happen. Now, Zeba and Zalmana were in Kekor with a force of about 15,000 men. All that were left of the armies of the eastern peoples, 120,000 swordsmen had fallen. Gideon went up by the route of the nomads east of Nobah and Jogbaha and attacked the unsuspecting army. Zeba and Zalmanah, the two kings of Midian, fled, but he pursued them and captured them, routing their entire army. Again, he has victory. What seems absent in this part is the Lord's direct commands to do certain things like had happened before. Verse 13, Gideon, son of Joash, then returned from the battle by the pass of Harris. He caught a young man of Sukkoth and questioned him. Again, these are his own people. These are allies. These are Israelites. And the young man wrote down for him the names of the 77 officials of Sukkoth, the elders of the town. Then Gideon came and said to the men of Sukkoth, Here are Zeba and Zalmana, about whom you taunted me by saying, Do you already have the hands of Zeba and Zalmana in your possession? Why should we give bread to your exhausted men? He took the elders of the town and taught the men of Sukkoth a lesson by punishing them with desert thorns and briars. He also pulled down the the tower of Paniel and killed the men of the town. Can you picture this? These are his own dudes here. These are the Israelites. These are allies. 
I picture Gideon on this revenge tour. There's some violence here. We've talked about in the book of Judges, in many ways, Judges is kind of this dark closet of the Bible that we sometimes don't want to go into because we see some things that raise some questions. Verse 18, then he asked Zeba and Zelmanah, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? Men like you, they answered, each one with the bearing of a prince. Gideon replied, those were my brothers, the sons of my own mother. As surely as the Lord lives, if you had spared their lives, I would not kill you. Turning to Jether, his oldest son, he said, kill them. But Jether did not draw his sword because he was only a boy and was afraid. Zeba and Zalmanah said, come do it yourself. As is the man, so is his strength. So Gideon stepped forward and killed them and took the ornaments off their camel's necks. I feel like I'm watching a Mel Gibson movie more than I'm reading the Bible a little bit. I mean, there's this, this revenge that we see in Gideon. It's a brutal sort. To his young son, kill them. No, no, no. He's too young. It's going to get worse, though. Verse 22. The Israelites said to Gideon, rule over us, you, your son, and your grandson, because you have saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Those words are wonderful. Those words are spot on. Those words are in obedience to the Lord. But let's see what his actions are. And he said, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from your share of the plunder. It was the custom of the Ishmaelites to wear gold earrings. They answered him, we'll be glad to give them. So they spread out a garment and each of them threw a ring from the plunder into it. The weight of the gold rings he asked for came to 1,700 shekels. It's about 43 pounds. Not counting the ornaments, the pendants, and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian or the chains that were on their camels' necks. Gideon made the gold into an ephod, which he placed in Ophrah, his town. All Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and his family. Now let's look at Gideon for a moment. Again, last week, high point, rise of Gideon, man of faith, working through his weakness, Now let's look at the Gideon that we see. Where did he go wrong? Where did he go wrong? How do we see this gap between his words and his actions? How do we get from this man, this humble, seemingly humble man of faith to a quest for pride and power that will ultimately bring about his downfall and the downfall of generations to come. We see his heart. We see his idolatry. What has Gideon forgotten? What has Gideon forgotten? Whenever we fall, 
we forget things. What has he forgotten? We forgot the one who called him, the one who proved himself to him, and the one who won the battles for him. That's what Gideon has forgotten. He's forgotten God's work in this whole situation. Now, let's do some cultural connections here. What's an ephod? It's like this apron. It's kind of like a vest. Only one person would wear that. That would be the high priest who would go into the the Holy of Holies and, and offer sacrifices. This was not meant for like everybody to wear. If you go back to like Exodus 28, you see all the specific instructions. There was these two stones that were kind of related to how one would judge. Like one kind of represented yes, one represented no. There's different theories about that happened. But that was an authority placed by God into the high priest. So what we see in Gideon is this grasping once again, for power. That's what Gideon is about. Now, although he had rejected the title king, he's really acting as if he is one. He's on this quest. In fact, he will have a child named Abimelech, and Abimelech actually means son of a king. So that's how people looked at Gideon. So what kept Gideon from finishing strong? His quest for power, his idolatry, his 43-pound idol to his quest for power. I would say it this way, Gideon uses God to strengthen his position with his people. Instead of using his position to strengthen the people's connection to God. That's what Gideon's about. I'm not going to leave you there. I'm not going to just leave you with an example. I mean, in some ways, it's a cautionary tale. Because I believe we all have certain tendencies. We have certain ways we can be ensnared. So what can we learn from Gideon? What can we learn from his fall? I want to take you to the book of Hebrews because Hebrews is going to answer this question very clearly. One of the the clearest, most powerful, finishing strong passages in the entire Bible. When you think about your functional Bible, and, and I, I, I love it when kids ask questions. I love it when adults ask questions. I love it when people have a hunger for the Word, and we all need a functional Bible. We need those passages. We need those stories in the Bible. We need the Word that can say, I'm in this situation right now, and I have a grasp of the Word at a level that I can apply it to my life whether you're just getting started off in faith or whether you're at the tail end of your journey on this earth, we need the Word to instruct us. We need the Word to give us light. We can't simply look to ourselves and do what is right in our own 
eyes. So I want to take you to Hebrews 11, verse 39. This is, we've referenced this a few times over the last few weeks and really in our whole year in faith stories, but this is this, is this list of some of the heroes of the faith. And it said these, this is including Gideon, were all commended for their faith, yet none of them had received what had been promised. Since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message paraphrase. He says it this way, not one of these people, even though their lives of faith were exemplary, got their hands on what was promised. God had a better plan for us that their faith and our faith would come together to make one completed whole. Their lives of faith not complete apart from ours. I want you this morning to see this picture of connection. As followers of Jesus, even in the Old Testament, they looked forward to Jesus, they looked forward to that what was to come, and our connection with believers of the past, believers now, Believers here right in Greenwood and around the world have the great opportunity uh, tomorrow flying out to Brazil to join up with Pastor Telly and Rachel, our impact partners, and celebrate 30 years of ministry Brazil. And just excited about what the Lord's going to do there. And really get a vision to, to see what God is doing there and what God has for us in the future. I want to take you now, though, even as we think about this connection, and I want to give you four keys to finishing strong that we're going to get from Hebrews 12.1. So I want to take you to Hebrews 12.1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders in the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the, of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart, so that you will finish strong. Four keys, but I want to say it in this way, with this bottom line. Get your eyes in the right place, and your feet will follow. When our eyes are in the right place, our feet will follow. The first place to look is very clear. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is the author. He is the pioneer. He is the forerunner of our faith. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a follower because he pursued you. He rescued you. He pulled you up out of the pit. He's the first mover. 
He is also the perfecter. He is the finisher. He is the one that will strengthen you. Grace is not just grace that saves you. There is a grace that sustains you through whatever daily trials you are experiencing. He is our example. He is our inspiration. And he is with you now. He's with you now. He is always working. Always working. Even when we can't, uh, we, we sing this song, even when we can't see it and we can't feel it, he is always working. Always working. So the first thing we have to do is we have to fix our eyes. We have to look at Jesus in all the ways we can be distracted. We fix our eyes on Jesus. The second place to look is at our attachments. We look at our attachments. In this passage, the writer says, throw everything off that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I want to talk about those as attachments, things that stick to you, things that cling to you. I want to break it down into a couple different categories. First of all, it's everything that hinders you. This could be a lot of things. Sometimes we think of, you know, what are the idols of our life? We can, we can use like spiritual language and we can talk about those things. You know, what are the, what are the things that are attached to us that aren't necessarily bad things, but they're good things that we've turned into God things. Your job can become an idol. Your retirement account can become an idol. Your appearance, your health, your fitness, your social media presence, your politics, Whatever it is that is attaching to us more strongly than Jesus can become an idol. Can become an idol. Can become a hindrance. In and of itself, it may not be bad, but it can become a hindrance. I would challenge us this morning to look at those attachments. Told a few stories over the last year because it took a year to build this deck for my daughter and son-in-law. Thank you, Jesus. I have finished the race. I have completed the deck. We celebrated. We had the birthday party and all that. And as a thank you, they got me a Blackstone griddle. Wow. I didn't even know these things existed. How cool is a a 36-inch, four-burner griddle. I've used it three times already. Hibachi twice and breakfast once. Had family over yesterday morning. I'm cleaning it up. I'm up late at night watching YouTube videos of the million people that are experts with their Blackstone griddle. And I'm like, 
and, and this happened the other, yesterday morning. I, I, I'm sitting down, and, and, and rather than just sit with the family and enjoy the moment, I got to get up and clean my Blackstone griddle. Because what happens if, you know, I can look at this attachment and I can say, if I'm not careful, because I'm not usually one who like. I mean, I'm not a big like stuff kind of guy for the most part, but this griddle, it could become, it could become an unhealthy attachment if I'm not careful. Now you may say, oh, good night, that's a silly example. The problem in our spiritual walk sometimes is we just think of the big things. We just think of the big idols. What about your everyday? What are the everyday attachments that you say, hey, if I'm not careful, this can become too big a part of my life? I don't know what that is for you. And again, some of you are saying, well, Jason, I would love to take that idol off of your hands. <laughs> but I'm going to say every good gift is from above, and I'm going to use it, but use it in the right way. So we all have attachments that could be good, but we got to be careful. Now, there's also just sin that entangles us. Not everybody's sin expression is the same, but whatever that is for you, it entangles. Forgetting the quest for power says it's a snare. I'm looking at some fishermen out in, in the audience, and it's, it's like bait. It's a hook. It lures you in. So we've got to pay attention. We've got to look at it. And what's our tendency with any sin? Oh, it's no big deal. I want to minimize it. What the writer's saying, no, no, get, get rid of that. Get rid of it. Now, I can only really do that just my willpower alone, without a greater vision of who Jesus is in pursuing him, that's a losing battle. That it can be a losing battle. But the problem with sin is that we enjoy it. If we didn't enjoy it, we probably wouldn't do it. So how does Jesus become the strongest attachment in our lives? How does he become the one that we are pursuing more than anything else? The third place to look. Look at your community. We see this description of the great cloud of witnesses. The great cloud of witnesses. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and sometimes I'm not sure exactly how to interpret this. Sometimes we, I think, go a little far and we just picture people up in heaven cheering us on and discussing a the theology of heaven and all that's a little more complicated than that. I like the simple way of thinking about it this way, that we are looking at that list. We are looking at that example. We are looking at the ones who have gone before us. When I go down to Brazil and we think about 30 years of ministry and I can look out at Jeff, I can look out at others who poured the concrete floor of some of these places. And I'm like, how cool is that? How cool is it to look back at the ones who've gone before you? 
when you look at the list, you see a list of, of sinners and faith. And when we look at that, guess what we're looking at? The mirror. The mirror. So I believe one of the keys to finishing strong is as we look at the community of faith is to look at those who have encouraged you in the past. To look back. Who made it possible? And imagine meeting them again one day. And that's real. I mean, imagine meeting, having that conversation someday. And I would also invite us to look at the next generation and the generation after that. How will they look at us? What influence did we have? What encouragement did we fail to give because we were attached to the wrong things? I challenge us all to play our hindrances, to play our sins forward, and imagine our influence if you're a parent, grandparent, you know, you think about your great, great, great grandkids and that influence. You know, if you're a student, I'm looking at these students here, and I know some of you are going to go into tough places, tough work situations, tough, tough college situations. If you're going to IU and it's welcome week, let me just warn you right now, it's a big, huge party. (laughs) Get yourself to church. That's my practical advice. Make that decision day one, go to church. That wasn't in the the script. I just felt led to say that. But wherever you are, find a community right away. Those of you who've walked a little bit, can I get an amen? Because everything will cry, will scream for your attention. And there's not going to be a lot of people saying, hey, get up, go to church. Find a community. So let's make this concrete. Look back, say thank you, look forward. What, what is your influence? What will that be? When we think of eternity and we think of What impact did I have? Make it concrete. What are the next generations going to say? How are they going to look back? Finally, look at the finish line. Look at the finish line. There is a race marked out for each one of us. Jesus says, or Jesus looked at the joy set before him, and he endured the cross. And we are to consider him. We are to not just consider but this word really means to, to, to think hard, to look at carefully, to weigh it, and to say, consider the joy set before. Consider the joy of eternity. Consider that great reunion. Consider meeting Jesus face to face. Consider, play that all forward and then put that next to whatever challenge, pain you're going through right now. Do the math. If Jesus really rose from the dead and it's all true, it's not even a close call. Consider him who endured the cross for you and for me. So what is that joy set before you? Your relationship with the God of the universe that will go on and on and on forever. We will never see the end 
of that. Well, this morning when we consider, we look, and when we say, get your eyes in the right place and your feet will follow, one of the ways we focus our attention, one of the ways we look at Jesus is we come to the communion table together. That's what we do. We, we consider him. We, we look at him. As brothers and sisters in Christ, as those who've taken that step of faith and trust, doesn't mean we've got it all figured out. Doesn't mean we don't have questions. Doesn't mean we, we're not in the middle of something really hard right now. But when we come to the table, what we're doing is we're remembering. We're remembering the cost that Jesus paid for us. We're remembering our sin. We can look at the cross and we can, we can think of the crowd that said crucify him. We can think of the disciples that abandoned him, that betrayed him. And we also have to remember it's my sin, it's your sin, it's our sin that put him there. So we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he gathered his disciples in the upper room and after giving thanks and breaking the bread, he, he gave it to them. He said, this is my body given for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup represents my blood, blood of the new covenant, blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. So just as you receive the bread, receive the cup. And when we do that, we remember, we look back, and we look forward to his return. I would invite you to pray with me, and then when I'm finished, know that the table is open. And you can come forward and receive on your own and receive the elements when you're ready back at your seats. Father, we thank you. Oh, do we thank you for your goodness to us. May we fix our eyes on you, Jesus. May we consider you, Jesus, the one who endured. The one who endured opposition. The one who endured the pain of the cross. We remember that while we were yet sinners, Jesus, you died for us. We remember the, the bread, we remember the cup, and we look forward to your return. So help us now to remember, to examine our hearts, and we say thank you, Jesus, for your love for us. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.